please stand for the reading of God's word. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But for some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to the town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he would not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, so, that, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, as, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the, with the fragrance of the perfume. But, Ju but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Our God. Thanks, Cece. What's good, Soma Downtown Church? My name is Satchel Burton and I'm the associate director here. Uh, to start off, I actually want to issue an apology. Um, I want to apologize to our kids this morning. I know that this can seem very shocking and hard to grasp, um, but I am not Rupert from the number three British pop cover boy band. <laughs> and I do not belong to the hit sensation uh, Turned Around. Um, but if you're wondering, like, what is he talking about? Uh, this past week, we did three days of VBS 
And during that time, I got to partner with Kent Livingston, who's one of the pastors here, and we did all the skits. Um, and I, I do want to recognize that that was probably the pinnacle of Kent's acting career. Um, I'm very imp impressed with Butler University's fine arts program. And uh, no, but all in seriousness, a huge shout out to Cindy Rolfe and all the volunteers. Uh, yeah, let's give her a hand. It was an incredible week, and we're just so grateful that we get to pour into our kids. Um, if you're joining us, we are continuing to journey through the Gospel of John, and we're getting closer and closer to the climactic moment uh, where Jesus will face the cross. And last week, Kent taught on perhaps one of Jesus' most profound miracles, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And we looked at that miracle through the lens of Mary and Martha and the progression of faith that they experienced. And so this passage that Cece read for us is coming right after that. And it's kind of a strange passage. But what I found really interesting, thinking on it and meditating on it throughout the week, is that it begins and ends with God's people missing God right in their midst. But if we can position ourselves in a place, we can see it. And the heart of this passage invites us to beautiful and lavish worship. So that's where we're going to go. That's kind of the theme that I feel like God has led me through, and I think we're ready. So we're going to jump right into John 11, 45 through 46. This is directly after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The resurrection of Lazarus surely inspired the faith that Jesus was hoping for. But 46 is interesting. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees. Why, Why did they go? By the way that 46 contrasts 45, it appears that many of the Jews were concerned and threatened by Jesus' increasing influence and his capacity to challenge the religious status quo. Just like in previous passages in John, Jesus' life and ministry causes division. And if we continue on, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The commotion sparked by Jesus' miracle causes the council, or the Sanhedrin, to come together. And at that time, the Sanhedrin was the highest judicial body in the land of Israel, second to their Roman occupiers. The 70 members of the Sanhedrin were composed of the most prominent religious teachers from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these religious and political parties running Israel. And it's interesting, the evidence is ever before them. They do not try to disprove Jesus as a hoax. They can't. The number of signs performed by Jesus in the eyewitness accounts is compelling. But for whatever reason, it does not cause them to revisit their stance on who Jesus is. In short, 
they miss it. And we could ask, how could they miss it? Like, how could they not see the transformed lives that follow Jesus around wherever he goes like a shadow? Or how could they spend their entire lives studying the scripture, pursuing holiness, hoping in a Messiah, only to end up in the end opposing him? And these questions cannot be easily answered this morning. And we come to them with a great deal of hindsight. But if we want to get the most out of this passage, we can tread forward with humility and vulnerability. So I think the answer to these questions is pretty complex. But if we look at verse 48, we can begin to unravel at the heart of the Pharisees. Notice where these religious leaders are placing their emphasis. Jesus' revival of messianic hope threatens what? Their place and their nation. In their eyes, the inspiration that Jesus is bringing about, combined with the national pride of the Passover feast, could incite a rebellion and cause the Romans to retaliate, leaving the Sanhedrin without the safety, the influence, and the power that it had always enjoyed. It's interesting, Jesus' message in ministry incites fear and not freedom when our agendas cling too tightly to wealth, to control, and personal safety. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And John is going to interject here. And he says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So on that day, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Caiaphas, who's the high priest, he's a Sadducee, he takes the fears of the council and he turns it into action. In his mind, it is better that Jesus should die like a ransom for the peace and security of the nation. And as you read this, the irony is just so thick here. Caiaphas, as high priest, is charged with leading the people into God's will, being a prophet for God. And John says that even though he's unaware, he does prophesy. Caiaphas utters words meant for injustice and evil, but God is speaking at the same time, speaking words of life and life to the full. And Caiaphas and the council attempt to regain control of this situation, but their control is an illusion. This passage makes it clear that the spirit is at work and active, that it's not solely the condemnation of the religious leaders that lead Jesus to the cross, it is the perfect and loving will of the Father that sinners should be healed through the sacrifice of Jesus. And as we read this, many of us probably aren't surprised. The Pharisees had seemingly opposed Jesus since the beginning of his ministry. The teens today would say that Jesus got ops and these are his ops. And we can easily settle for that. However, if we skip towards the end of the passage that C.C. read for us, we see that even those who called themselves disciples missed what God was doing in their midst. And so 
before Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the Passover, he stops two miles outside of the city at Bethany, and he visits his friend Lazarus, where he, who he had raised from the dead. And as they prepare a feast for him, Mary, Lazarus' sister, anoints his feet with expensive ointment. We're going to get into that in just a bit. And a sweet fragrance fills the house. And it is sweet to everyone, but potentially the disciples and, of course, Judas. In chapter 12, we'll start off in verse 4. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's a great question. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so we assume up to this point, Judas has followed Jesus every day of his life for nearly three years. He has seen with his own eyes Jesus heal, rescue, and save. Yet in the midst of this outpouring of Mary's love for Jesus, Judas becomes frustrated and angry. And what's disguised as a plea for social justice is actually Judas's desire for self-gain and self-preservation. Is he not aware that he is in the presence of social justice incarnate? And when we read these accounts, at least when I read them, I always think, surely if Jesus was here doing these things today, I would not miss him. I would believe. I say things like, Jesus, if you would just show up right here in this moment, if you would answer this one prayer powerfully, I would never doubt. But here and throughout the entire Old Testament of scriptures, we see that it is not a physical proximity to God and what he is doing that leads to spiritual transformation but rather it's the proximity of our hearts to God's. Um, and a little bit about me, I didn't grow up as a Christian. Um, I found Christ when I went off to college. And I remember coming back home my junior year, and by the grace of God, my parents had begun following Jesus. And it's this beautiful story that I don't have time for. Uh, but I'm back on an extended break, and my mom invites me to a prayer service at her church. And I'm just so glad. My mom's connected to a church. Of course I'll go with you. And uh, in the car, I'm kind of thinking, like, you know, I've never been to a prayer service before, but I know how to pray. I know how people pray. I should be good. And we get there in the sanctuary, and lo and behold, it opens up with worship. They start singing and playing instruments. I'm like, yeah, I can get down to that. I know how, to, I know how this works. And the pastor comes up, he opens up the Bible and starts pulling out the promises of Jesus Christ. I'm like, yeah, I can get behind that. But then the prayer team starts coming up. And then the pastor invites everyone to come up and to be prayed for, for spiritual and physical healing. And at that moment, like the hairs in the back of my neck stand up. And I say, ooh-wee. And at first, I see just a couple people go to the sanctuary, the front of the sanctuary, to be prayed for. And I'm thinking in my mind, you know what? There are some people here who are sane. Not everyone is into this. Not, not everyone is bought into this. But all of a sudden, in a matter of moments, the stage is literally filled with people. And they're laying hands on one another. And they're praying for one another. 
And people are proclaiming that they have received freedom. They have received healing. I literally see people skip back to their seats. I see families hold each other with tears. And the worship just gets louder and louder. And now at this point, I'm just like uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, absolutely no way. This is not God. This is not how God works. And this is not worship. And as we leave, I'm in the car, and I remember clearly thinking, we got to get my mom out this church. Um, but I've reflected on this several times since. And each time it has become more and more clear to me that I missed what God was doing and saying to me in that moment. I have felt God lovingly yet firmly correct me. Satchel, did you see it? Did you see your mom lifting her hands in praise, opening her heart to me? Did you see that your mom was once dead, but now she is made alive? Did you see that I answer prayer and I am a loving and gracious God? Did you see it? And Satchel, you have no idea how long these people have desired to be made whole. And then I alone can make men and women whole. Did you see it? And I've since realized, obviously, that I missed it. I missed it because my heart was not in close proximity to God's. I was self-righteous, and I believed that I knew what was best, and I knew how God operated. I missed it because my desire was to be comfortable within the framework of Christianity that I had so enjoyed with God. And I missed it because I was unwilling to let go of prideful expectations. And I was afraid to admit that I might be missing something. And so the truth is, we are all prone to miss the presence of God and what he is saying in any given season. And I say this not to burden you or to incite fear, but to challenge you and help you imagine that maybe if we see it, there is something beautiful and freeing waiting for us. So going back to the text, in between these two instances of God's people missing God is a woman who represents their antithesis, a woman who sees it and experiences profound and freeing worship. So the question that we begin with is how? How did Mary see it? What compelled her to recognize the treasure that is Jesus Christ? And to answer this question, we can be helped by John and by Luke. In John's gospel, we're introduced to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' sister. Where we aren't given a lot of details of who she is, but we do know that she knows Jesus. She is loved by Jesus. When Jesus finally comes to Bethany, she meets him and falls at his feet and says, Lord, if you were here, my brother would not have died. She has a degree of faith in Jesus. And then she ultimately witnesses the power of Jesus. But the scary part is that, however, this does not necessarily distinguish her from the religious teachers or from Judas. And so another place in the Gospels that we can find more insight into Mary and her heart is Luke chapter 10. 
In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has just sent out 72 of his disciples on a very successful mission, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And as they continue to continue to journey, we pick up in verse 38 through 42. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell, me, tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Mary is found at the feet of Jesus, denoting that she has given him an incredible amount of authority and importance in her life. And Luke says that she sits there at his feet and listens to his teaching. And I want to clarify, this is not like the listening many of us do on a day-to-day, -day. like when we're on like a work call, but we're actually in the background answering text messages, checking Instagram. And like a little side note, if you are on a Zoom call with me and you do not show your camera, I cannot trust you. <laughs> I am going to assume that you're not paying attention. I'm going to assume that you're not working from home, but you're on a beachfront condo in Florida. <laughs> I digress. But this is listening in the proactive sense. It's internalizing every word that comes from the lips of Jesus. And so Mary is just caught up in this moment. Her presence and her heart is ever towards Jesus, and she just flat out forgets her responsibilities. And her sister is frustrated. But Jesus defends Mary from criticism. She's chosen the good portion. It's not going to be taken away from her. She hasn't missed it. She's right where God wants her to be. So it's no surprise that in both times in John's gospel, we see Mary where? At the feet of Jesus. John is trying to communicate that Mary's lavish worship starts with a humble posture, a position at the feet of Jesus. So for us, if we want to join in with Mary, seeing what God is doing and saying in any given moment, we start with humility. But practically, what does that look like? How do we sit at the, fit, the feet of Jesus? It can look many different ways since our goal is not to craft a specific regimen or ritual, but rather cultivate a heart posture. And one way that has really stuck with me is something that Pastor Art DeBrian from Center Grove Church a.k.a. Ali's dad, has encouraged me to do. It's a set of questions that have just like helped me come back to the presence of Jesus and helped me to have an open hand to him. And so cultivating a humble position, the three questions, it begins, one, with self-examination. What am I feeling right now? And you may be thinking, wait, I thought this was supposed to be about humility, and the first question is about ourselves. Yeah, it's still about humility. As we understand where we are positioned, we can understand where we are in relation to God. We can then bring our full selves to the feet of Jesus, not just our best foot forward. The second question 
Does Jesus seem near or far? Why do I think that in this moment? And here we're just trying to relocate ourselves to the feet and the presence of Jesus, no matter how far or distant we might feel. And lastly, what might Jesus be inviting me into? How can I respond to Jesus' invitation in a way that ushers in opportunities for repentance, mercy, justice, and forgiveness? And how is God going to be revealed when I accept this invitation? These questions are powerful to me because the Spirit has used them to draw me back to the feet of Jesus to a place of humble curiosity, listening carefully to the words of the master. And for us, this is just one of the ways that we can obtain a humble position. I hope that encourages you. Because true worship requires humility. True worship requires humility. And this passage, particularly with Mary anointing Jesus' feet, has been incredibly encouraging to me in my walk. When we've humbled ourselves, we can see it. We don't have to continue missing it any longer. And as I've thought about this, our response to the person of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done, is worship. And this story challenges me and deepens my personal understanding of what worship is, and I'm hoping that it could encourage you too. So we're going to pick back up into the text, chapter 12, verse 1 through 8. This is the meat of the passage, and we'll stick here for the rest of our time. Six days before the Passover feast, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. One of the first things we notice is Mary's direct focus. Her undivided attention belongs to Jesus and invites her into a place of worship. And that's our invitation, too. And as we think about focusing on Jesus to deepen our own sense of worship, that point seems like really straightforward. You're like, yeah, duh, Jesus should always be the focus. That goes without saying. But if we're honest with ourselves, that simple aim is often harder to realize. Okay, and so let's just be real for a second. What we're seeing here is kind of strange. Like imagine being at this dinner and seeing it play out with your own eyes. You may be confused. Why is Mary doing all of this? Or uncomfortable? You might think it's uncouth. Women at that time, it was not proper for them to 
expose their hair before any man but their husband? You might think this is wasteful. This could be sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. You can think it's purely emotional and not logical. She's not thinking clearly. Or perhaps you think it's beautiful and it's admirable. But regardless of what you think and of what the disciples may be thinking, Mary is not bothered by it. Her strange, unprecedented, and lavish act of worship is not predicated on the opinions of others or the opinion of herself. It is predicated solely by the power, the love, and the mercifulness of Jesus Christ. It's in this moment that Mary is so focused on the person of Jesus that she takes quite possibly the most expensive thing that she owns, what was worth an entire year wage, and pours it out before Jesus in a moment. Mary is not bound by selfish desire for wealth, personal gain, or the affirmation of others. She's willing to give it all. She's willing to sacrifice it because she has found something far greater and far more valuable. She has found life and joy and freedom because she's able to focus on the loving Savior. And that's, I think, the place where we all want to be. And so what are the things in your life that prevents you from focusing on Jesus and what he's doing? What might be robbing us of seeing Jesus clearly in all the things that we do, like working, raising kids, cooking, developing friendships, being a part of a church, and much more? For me, it's the obsessive thought. What will other people think of me? Will their perspective of me change? Will I no longer be impressive or appreciated? It's in this place that my actions are not guided by the Spirit, but they're guided by my desire for affirmation and acceptance that I have wrongfully placed in the hands of others. And it's in that place that I miss it. I miss what God is doing and saying. And we're not really sure if Mary truly knows what she's doing in this moment. She certainly didn't expect her act of lavish love to have this sort of magnitude, but it's her undivided focus that Jesus' selfless love is revealed, that he is going to die for the life of the world. It is now clear that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, and that he's not just a king, but a humble king, a compassionate king who invites his people to sit at his feet. Deepening our worship requires our entire selves. And based on the gospel accounts, we are unsure in this scene what Mary said. We are unsure if she said anything at all. Nor do we even know what she was thinking. However, what is clear is that she takes what is most precious and valuable and adorns Jesus with it. She brings not only expensive ointment, but she brings her very self. Here we can take note that Mary's capacity to worship is not confined by cultural or religious norms, intellectual contemplation, or emotional outpouring. She brings the sum of all her parts to Jesus. This act of devotion is physical, intellectual, spiritual, emotional, and even financial. 
Mary beautifully displays that worshiping our God requires our whole selves. Surely the majesty and the goodness of God would be lacking if it only required my mind, my heart, or my will. But the majesty and goodness of God revealed through Jesus Christ is so vast that it requires our entire lives to experience it, to enjoy it, and to respond to it. Worshiping Jesus Christ ought to encompass every facet of our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. And I just want to recognize two ways that I've seen this corporately here in our church community, and it's been a real gift to me. If you've been here over the past several years, uh, you will know that we've recently changed our liturgy. Caleb and Josh Hale, Double Trouble, are, pro are probably some of the smartest, deepest, and most con contemplative people I know. And they have expressed this through the way that they lead us through liturgy. More than ever, we are exploring places of silence, listening for the word of the Spirit in the quietness of the room and in the quietness of our hearts taking time to respond in obedience and sincerity. And I think it's been a real gift to our church. Uh, we're also not really a clapping or like a moving church. Um, for a lot of us, including me, that's just not how we have historically enjoyed the love and the presence of Jesus. But what I'm proud to say is that we have not let that limit us from asking, what more can we experience, Jesus? What might we be missing today? And when several people in our church family brought up the idea of a praise dance ministry, though many of us were unaware of what it could be or unfamiliar with the idea, we welcomed it. And as bodies moved to the sound of the music, God's word came alive in a new way. The gospel story took on visceral emotions as it brought many of us to smiles and joy and laughter, but also to tears. And the joy that only belongs to Jesus filled the room with the pounding of feet and the clapping of hands. And so when we start to imagine and to challenge our minds to question what all worship can be, I think life with Christ becomes more satisfying more full of childlike wonder, and we become more willing to see the different ways that God is working in our midst and speaking in our midst. And lastly, will we continue to discover through Mary, but also through our own worship as we deepen it, is that worship is witness. In this day and age, worshiping Jesus Christ is coming with less and less benefits. And so your worship, now more than ever, is compelling. Worship is far more reaching and impactful than we could ever imagine. What begins in your heart overflows into the church and into the city. Mary's act of devotion, her worshipful life, is far-reaching. In John, it says, the fragrance of Mary's perfume filled the entire house. You cannot walk in that joint without smelling the goodness. In Matthew and Mark, when they're talking about the same sort of scene, 
Jesus tells the disciples that wherever his gospel is told in the whole entire world, to every people group and nation throughout all history, the story of what Mary did will also be told. It would serve as a beautiful invitation to what a joyful, delightful, and full life that Jesus is offering sinners. It would encourage the saints throughout the generations, reminding them that we have freedom and life in Christ and that he is far greater than anything we could ever imagine. I mean, even just think for one second how your worshipful life, I keep saying worship like a worsher, Um, so sorry about that. (laughs) Imagine how your worshipful life could offer something powerful and inviting to the world around you. In a culture where everyone is just racing to the top of the corporate and the social ladder and striving to acquire more and more and just a little bit more, you can live counterculturally. You can live with a deep sense of contentment and a heart for generosity because you know that you are deeply loved by Jesus, that he is going to take care of you, and that he is greater than anything else the world can provide you. And in a city where certain neighborhoods or communities are classified as unmarketable, or high need, you live in their midst with anticipation and hope, holding on to the promise that Jesus Christ is going to bring redemption and justice to a hurting world. You can treat your neighbors, all of your neighbors, not just the neighbors that you like, with dignity and hospitality because you know that they have been created in the image of God, bearing his likeness, and you know that they, and you recognize that they have the capacity to bring flourishing into a world that Jesus is renewing. Our worship is powerful. And the good news of this story is that you and I no longer have to miss it. That we can humble ourselves with the help of the Spirit. And we can have eyes to see the person of Jesus Christ, his fullness. And we can respond by worshiping him with our entire lives. And so as we close, a way that we regularly practice sitting at the feet of Jesus is through communion. Here as we take a humble position before our Lord, we remember and consider that Jesus, our humble Savior, gave up his own body and spilled his own blood so that we no longer have to miss it, so that we would be brought near, that we would become sons and daughters, and we would have a loving father who peels back the curtain and says, look how beautiful, how good, and how amazing, and how true is life with Jesus Christ. And so I just encourage you, as you come and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, that you would just take a moment to hear what Jesus is saying to you in this season, what he is inviting you into. And there'll be three communion stations, gluten-free, will be in the middle. I'm gonna go ahead and pray, and then we'll break bread together. Jesus, You are the fullness of the Father. You are the image 
of the invisible God, you have made known to us that there is a God who created us, who loves us, and who's walking us into a way of everlasting life. Jesus, I pray that you might lead us into humility, that we would take seats at your feet, that in a world that is filled with voices, where the volume is high and we can't stop talking, that we would take a seat and that we would listen to every word that comes from your mouth and that you would reveal to us this week as we go and work and labor and raise kids and hang out with neighbors and do all the things that you would reveal yourself and that we would respond with worship. Jesus, we love you. We don't want to miss it. Thank you for everything you have done. And we pray this in your name. Amen.